0: You're listening to episode 43 of the Tennis Vows podcast with special
1: guest Matt Bilger. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad.
0: Hey, everyone. Warm welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, warm welcome because I know it's really cold out there for most of you listening in. Uh, I know that the new year is coming up and I really hope that everybody has had a great 2016 so far. And I just want everybody to, you know, really take a moment to review uh, what happened during the year and uh, what things we're grateful for and what things uh, we can improve upon uh, moving in towards uh, the next new year in 2017. And we should all be really pumped and ready to uh, just become better people, better tennis players, and, uh, and live a great life. So with that rather inspirational uh, bout of words, uh, I'd like to just talk about the podcast today. I've got Matt Bilger, who is a really fun uh, and hilarious guy, actually. He was um, my assistant uh, coach at uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, when I played uh, Division I college tennis over there. And he is now the director at Chantilly National uh, at the tennis program over there. And he does a great job um, teaching the uh, kind of the amateur slash country club tennis crowd, which I know, again, a lot of you are uh, in that category, just trying to improve your game, attending clinics and getting lessons. And uh, Matt has done a great job throughout his career Uh, really bringing an extremely positive and fun attitude to the courts. Uh, I always remember whenever I had a uh, down moment or anything like that, I knew that I could just talk to Matt and he'd always bring a smile to my face. And It was incredible too because I was at a pro-am at Chantilly National. Uh, Matt kindly invited me um, a few months ago and uh, just watching him uh, teach uh, and, and interact with the members he was just uh, just such a great fit for that position. Um, so I hope you get a lot out of what Matt and I talk about today on this episode, episode 43 and uh, you can find the show notes uh, as usual um, on my website on uh, on com 43. So without further ado, here is my interview with Matt Bilger. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce Matt Bilger, who is the director at Chantilly National Golf and Country Club. He is the director of tennis over there. Um, I actually met Matt because he was the assistant coach uh, for a time at UMBC where I played uh, college tennis. Uh, Matt also is uh, very, you know, experienced in, in uh, playing as well. He, he's been ranked nationally uh, at number uh, number five, I believe, in, in the 35s um, and number 16 uh, in the 35s individuals. And um, he also has, uh, you know, taught for over 20 years, I believe. And he is a three time 5.0 USTA National Championship uh, participant. Um, as well as uh, the over twenty five Mid Atlantic Singles and Doubles Championships participant, and I've played against Matt a few times, and he's really got game. Uh, you know, in the five zero leagues and stuff, and uh, you know, Matt is just uh, very experienced in both coaching and playing. And I just want to welcome uh, you to the show, Matt.
2: Thanks, Mirabon. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and thanks for all the kind words.
0: Yeah, no worries. I uh, just want to pick your brains. Obviously, you know, you're the director of tennis and you've, you've taught a lot of uh, amateur players over the years, college players. I know you've got a lot of uh, wonderful advice that you can give to our audience today. Um, but I just want to start off by asking you how you got to where you are today in your tennis career. That's uh, a uh, good
2: question an interesting story. I actually uh, stumbled into tennis uh, late in my life. I didn't start playing probably until late high school maybe goofing around and and at your alma mater and you know where you and I crossed paths first I long before I knew anything about tennis I used to hit off the wall there on that first court when my father was playing Hmm. and uh didn't really play a whole lot of junior tennis or any junior tennis no tournaments anything like that didn't play in college um and kind of fell into it in my early 20s at a YMCA in Towson where uh, a guy named Ernest Burke uh who played in the Negro leagues, who was an older gentleman ironically and he kind of got me a little fire in the under tennis and I started enjoying teaching it. And then, I uh, really, uh, loved the game and decided if I was going to teach it, I probably should try to play, uh, you know, relatively well. And so I uh, started taking lessons with Lenny Sherman and Tia, uh, at the tennis Institute, two great guys. And, uh, lo- again, lucked into another job through a location of living at a Jewish community center where my career actually started taking shape. I was there for nine years and had a whole lot of juniors, uh, funny i remember going to a lot of the conferences with tom holmes and some guys for prince who was the racket company that i used back then people would think it was funny i worked at the jewish community center It was a very good job a lot of kids very affluent program um i learned a lot did a lot there and uh you know had a lot of people influence me along the way to where i am now
0: that's awesome Matt. yeah you know, i want to back up just to the beginning of your uh, tennis experience and i was wondering you mentioned that uh a gentleman at that uh club in your 20s uh he he lit a fire under you and regarding tennis, but I just wondering, like, what specifically did he say or do to to really get you into the game?
2: Well, you know, the game was very intriguing to me because, uh, ironically, I, you know, as a competitive person, you know that um, mm-hmm. my father played some, and so I wanted to beat him, and didn't have a whole lot of luck with it. <laughs> he was one of those garbage players, if you will, you know, chopping the ball and shipping the ball and slicing the ball. Uh his name was Ernest Burke. Ernest had a had a great love for the game, and it was just his passion, like the way he felt about it. You know, he was one of those guys who could probably sell you, you know, uh, uh, what do they say, a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. You know, he just he made the game seem so much fun and uh, had some really cute anecdotes and teaching styles. And then, you know, he actually was teaching a lot of older uh, people, you know, above 70, which at that time I was in my early 20s. Uh, you know, you learn a lot from teaching people like that and the transition of the game, I remember thinking he would tell them to stand in no man's land and play. And I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but they couldn't cover court the way, you know, we could or, or anything like that. So he was kind of teaching them how to shorten it up probably, the, you know, the beginning birth of of pickleball and such, but uh, you know, his passions what what I, I carry with me and I, you know, I, and his love for the game and, yeah, you know, I think if anything, in any job in life, if you're you're not going to be very good at it if you don't love what you do, you don't have a lot of passion. So,
0: yeah, that's hugely important. That's what's going to make us all successful in this sport. Um, and, and Matt, so you mentioned that you started, obviously, again um, in your 20s, but at what point did you start playing uh, tournaments or any competitive sort of uh, tennis?
2: Um, I guess I was. I used to hit with Ross Coleman, and Ross kind of started steering me towards uh, playing USTA. I mean, this is a long time ago. I mean, we were over Twin Lakes. I'm sure you've played at Twin Lakes. And that was back mm-hmm. when there was no basketball and there were five courts over there and they had a ladder and they had, you know, USTA matches about the, by the millions over there. Um, you know, 20s, 25s, 30s, stuff like that, I uh, guess through. And as I started, you know, playing some of the right usual suspects over there, you, know, you just fall in love with the game, it's the competition, the singles, the doubles. Um, and then I kind of realized that if I was going to get really good, I needed to consult some sort pretty high-level coaching, so that's where Lenny Shearman and, and mm-hmm. Ziha Twar came into to the picture. You know, just, just, you know, you've been around me, Mirabon. You right. you know how much I love to play, and now in my late 40s, I'm still looking to play and hit every day if I can. That's just how it is.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And um, so, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Ross Coleman because we had uh, Sophie Chang on the Tennis Files podcast on episode 15, and that's who uh, one of Ross's uh, main students, I suppose, and she's been doing pretty well on the – Pro Circuit and whatnot. Um, Yep. But so, moving on to uh, Chantilly National. So, I'm just curious, you know, and for all those aspiring um, tennis directors out there, kind of how you were able to get that position.
2: Uh, Well, you know, it's a lot of effort, a little bit of luck, I guess. Um, You you have to start... Through, you know, I guess you go through the channels. You have to be a uh, head pro, if you will, or a teaching pro, and you have to learn how to, t- you know, teaching and ups and downs. I was very lucky. A gentleman named Barry Gruby uh, hired me right out of UMBC when I was with you guys. And I was, I don't know if you remember, I was splitting time first couple years over there, mm-hmm. running between the college and, and a place called Homeland Racket Club up in house. And then uh, I was there for several years, and he taught me the ins and outs of clay court maintenance and things like that, which is very important. Uh, you know, they had a, just a small, tennis community but a very vibrant one there because they're only a rackets club um so uh they had 10 clay courts i learned a lot from barry uh he also managed cross keys so i got to see kind of the inner workings of an indoor facility and how that goes and then uh you know i managed to get lucky enough to get a job at a place called hillendale country club uh i was there for four years that was an awesome experience I, I got to come in and kind of turn a program that had gotten a little. I guess old school would be a good word for it and kind of put some energy into it and get some youth, uh, you know, moving into it. And uh, it's kind of my calling card, you know, bringing energy and, and, and a little bit of youth into the program and trying to get, you know, people excited about tennis the way I, I see tennis and the way I'm fired up about it. You know, I had a uh, had some help from a guy named Jamie Peterson along the way, who I believe is the mid Atlantic president of USTA. And he's, uh, I think working at Towson university now, um, doing a great job over there with the women. And uh, I think he actually worked at Hillendale last year. So, you know, I have a, yeah. You know, it takes a little help along the way, Mary And, you know, you meet the right people and they do the right things. And they just work real hard. So it's kind of how I ended up at Chantilly. I heard through the grapevine that that job was available. I went down and uh, I interviewed, I believe it was 66 applicants and uh, managed to get the job. I was ecstatic to to have it. I'm ecstatic to be there. It's a great place. You've been down. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a nice facility and the people are really into their tennis.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, that's a great story. And I do really enjoy Chantilly Nationally. You, you know, you've had me over for, uh, pro-am or two i believe and it's been really fun and the the you know all the players and amateurs have been really engaged there it's a very nice facility and so do you split time right now because i you still coach at goucher as well
2: so uh, when i get a chance i stop by and i see brandon Kincaid up at goucher i uh i only was there a couple times in the fall um you know this is uh this this job at chantilly is my first full year round experience uh you know most jobs at country clubs for the most part and if they don't have a bubble. Uh Hillendale did not have a bubble. Um uh, Homeland Racket Club my previous positions. Um my job is year round, so I'm getting paid year round. So it's gonna be kind of a feeling out process for how much time I have to, to lend to Goucher, but you know, I will as much time as I have before my season starts probably in, you know, March or whenever the weather breaks. We're still going on strong down here. At Chantilly, you know the weather's good and it's been uh, we've we've been pushing through. So as long as it's nice, I don't know if you remember Mirabon Belester, it was 64 degrees on Christmas Eve. So we'll keep going as long as we can yeah. go. And, uh, you know, whatever time I have to volunteer at Goucher, uh, great bunch of kids, great coach, uh, you know, I'll do what I can.
0: Yeah. Now you're doing a great job over there. You know, you're really getting a lot of engagement over there and doing a lot of, or, you know, posting a lot on, on social media and stuff. And I think that really helps a lot. Um, So you know, yeah, for sure. And so our audience really loves, you know, hearing about, um, just people persevering, persevering over adversity. I was just curious if you could maybe talk about maybe a time in your career, uh, cause you know, everyone goes through ups and downs where you were kind of maybe at a, a lowish point and then how you kind of just like got out of it.
2: It would, it would, it would take no thought whatsoever. It was last year. <laughs>
0: so
2: uh-huh. I, uh, I parted ways with Hillendale. Um, They had a desire for going a direction that I wasn't going in. And, and, you know, so we decided we were going to do two different things. And honestly, Mirabon, up until the, the afternoon, it was a Monday afternoon that I took my phone interview with Chantilly. I actually had a Tuesday interview with a pharmaceutical rep to change change positions wow. completely i was looking to go into the pharmaceutical world and i took a phone interview with a guy named chris david who's over at river creek mm-hmm. uh, in virginia and uh he you know represented the company that i work for which is club Corp, who owns chantilly and uh I, I, he said he was ecstatic about you know my interview i felt like my phone interview went really really well with him i i kind of answered all the questions that he was looking you know with the right answers obviously and uh you know we were about 12 hours away from me thinking about changing positions um hmm. I know you know this, and you've known me for a while. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and she's pretty much the the main focus of my life. And, you know, when you're looking for a director's job in the mid-Atlantic area, they're few and far between, you know. It's not like I could pick up and and move to Florida. She's a freshman in high school, so I'm not planning on moving until, you know, or going to a more affluent tennis area until she's in college. So, uh, you know, I just waited and waited and waited, and my friends told me, you know, just be patient, and it'll work out. And, you know, ironically, looking back, it's, it's crazy how things work out. So, you know, you just... Just try to do the right thing, be a good person, and, uh, you know, keep pounding on the right door, and sooner or later, one will open. It's kind of funny to look back, so there you go. That's one that's pretty recent.
0: Yeah, no, it's just really a great journey you've gone through, and yeah, your daughter is definitely a very good soccer player, as I've, um, you know, heard and, and seen and stuff on social media. Um, so before we touch on to, you know, all your expertise and, and your your experiences with your tennis um, community at Chantilly National, I was uh, you know, it's a fun question for me in the audience. Uh, what are three things that the world or most of the world doesn't know about Matt Bilger? <laughs> three things that I don't know about me.
2: Um, I don't know, man. I wear pretty much my heart on my sleeve. What don't they know? Um, keep keep uh, a I, 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 G-rated. <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. absolutely G-rated. I'm a yoga freak now. I do yoga. I think the people, though, who are close to me now and have been doing a lot of yoga, I'm, I'm very committed to it. I really enjoy it. It's helped, uh, helped keep me focused and kind of get me in a calming direction. I'm a pretty energetic personality, so sometimes that calm, and that focus helps me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm busy. That's another one. I'm busy getting a timeline finished on my shoulder, a tattoo for my uh, wow. for my daughter. It's a timeline of her life. So I'm actually in the process of getting the, the high school uh, emblem for where she's playing now as a varsity player and two goalie gloves. So there's something some people may not know. Wow. And um, what's the third thing? When everybody you always bring the good questions. Um, okay. um, I don't have any. Now people know I don't have any here. Um, favorite TV show? I, maybe? Oh, go ahead. Good. My favorite TV show. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I I just started watching. Um, I love The Walking Dead, but I started watching Daredevil. I'm kind of into that right now. So it's been a pretty good show. So that's a that's a good one. And now people know what to watch. Daredevil.
0: So. Interesting. I prefer SpongeBob yeah. myself, so it's a great show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds like something you'd say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Matt. Uh, so yeah. Now getting into you know teaching, you teach a ton of um, you know really engaged and great uh, people out at Chantilly. What are three of the biggest mistakes that you see uh, in your players uh, in their game uh, at your club? <laughs>
2: um. Well, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes is people tend to think they can just come out and play. You know, they don't understand the fitness level of tennis. They don't understand the practice element of tennis, but again, you know, the other side of that coin is some people just don't really want to get that much better. And I think that's kind of one of the secrets in being a good instructor is knowing which students really, really want to learn and change their game and get better. And, and you know, which people are kind of just uh, functioning with what they have, uh, and, and, you know, deciding that this is as much as, you know, they just enjoy being on the court and getting exercise this way. Um, so, you know, you kind of got to that's that's one of the things that, you, that I think if you'll make a mistake. I think the other is they don't know how physical tennis is. And I do a pretty physical brand of training as far as movement and activity goes. We don't do a lot of standing around. Um, you know. And I found that to be kind of a shock to a lot of the people that I've worked with this year at Chantilly. Although the tennis level there is, has been excellent. It's pretty high. Um, and I don't think they have any idea how much, you know, to, to, to that end. The difference between like singles and doubles, you hear a lot, I don't know if you've heard this in your life, but doubles is boring, um, mm. and doubles is not boring, it's a lot of fun, you just don't, you have to learn how to play it, you know, I always tell people, if you're playing doubles and it's not very exciting, you're not doing it right, you're not moving, you know, so get active and get in the game.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great. Uh, great point there, uh, three great points. So, you know, getting into kind of the, just the layout of what you do at Chantilly National, like, what are... Um, you know, what's the structure of your programs? Like what types of programs do you, do you run and, and all that?
2: So when you, I mean, this for me in my experience, when you're a director of facility, you have to offer everything. Mm-hmm. So that ranges from anywhere, you know, talking about, uh, small kids, uh, depending on athletic level, starting between four to six years old, ranging all the way through the teenagers. Um, I'm finding that the hardest group to reach out to so far has been that 14 to 18 year old range and i think you know you've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation social media is huge so you know we do a lot of snapchatting a lot of tweeting a lot of facebook posts for that age because that's kind of how they function you know i've learned that from my daughter they snapchat probably every seven seconds um <laughs> you know we run a run a plethora of uh, of clinics daily for the ladies because a lot of ladies play and you know, ladies play during the day the men will play at night um you know beginner level club level, meaning, you know, we have several, uh, Northern Virginia tennis league, uh, participants. So we have to run practices and, and drill groups for that group. Uh, we do cardio tennis. Uh, we have, a, a, a range I'm sure you've seen on social media of social events, a lot of them based around fun, some of them based around competition. And then you got to bring in some heavy hitters. Like, you know, we brought in, uh, Murphy Jensen and you, and, uh, you know, a lot of my buddies that play some tennis and, uh, you know, had a nice tournament there this year for uh, the prader Willie synd- uh, syndrome. So that was, you know, you couldn't attend, but hopefully you'll be able to make it next year. We had some some iffy weather, but, uh, you know, just offer a variety of events that get people fired up about tennis and keep it as fun as possible.
0: Yeah, no, that's wonderful stuff that you're doing there. And I'm um, just curious, like, with the social media, is that is that all you or do you also, like, kind of have other people do it?
2: So most of my... Social media stuff is, you know, being a friend on Facebook with me and, and such. Uh, it's either my daughter or it's tennis. Um, I don't share a lot of my personal life as far as that goes, but then again, my personal life pretty much is my daughter in tennis. Um, the club requires me now to post every Thursday. Um, hmm. and then We do a little thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it. We do something called Talking Tennis. And so sometimes I'll do a video. Sometimes we'll show, you know, a certain drill that we're working on. Oh, nice. um, you, know, you can like us at Chantilly National. We have a Facebook page. Um, you know, and so it's probably 70, 30, 70% me, 30% the club, but the members also like to see it and it generates interest. You know, if somebody's not making a clinic or somebody's not attending a social event and you show them how popular it was, you know, they may, may, may rearrange their schedules. Life is uh is pretty busy for most people. Everybody's got a, for lack of a word, an excuse or something going on. And so, you know, you kind of have to make tennis, uh, for us, I'm sure it's our first option, you know what I mean? Or first or second for a lot of people, it's not. So you kind of want to work to make it an option that way.
0: Um, so regarding your I mean all the people that you teach, I'm wondering you know obviously you know you have you know somewhat of a, a decently broad range where you have like total beginners and then you have some players who can you know play fairly consistently, maybe four four or five level but um, as far as technique, like what are um, some technical issues that you see players have and like kind of what's your approach to to solving those issues? Well,
2: You know, we have a lot of people that swing at their volleys. And so we have to, you know, work on explaining to them what volley is all about. You know, I I have the conversation on a daily basis that, you know, what you see on TV is not what you can do. Um, You know, those guys are pretty high level. That backswing and that execution is is not of the world that we're used to playing in. Um, And, you know, a lot of people, the first thing they'll say when you're trying to teach them, you know, to volley correctly is I don't have enough power. And, you know, you and I both know volley really doesn't have much to do with power. It's all about, you know, placement. Know, shortening the court up, giving yourself an opportunity to to execute and maybe not just shorten the court up, but shorten the point, um, mm-hmm. you know, helping people learn topspin. Uh, that's always, uh, you know, a difficulty. A lot of people don't really care depending on the age, you know, teenagers really do want to work on it. As you get up in age, you know, I guess your learning curve changes a little bit. And of course, as far as serving goes, you know, continental grip, correct execution with your serve, uh, you know, trying to get pronation rather than holding your racket like a frying pan. And, and, doing a variety of different things I'm sure
0: you and I have seen over the years. So, I think
2: the the issues are pretty common across the board as far as, you know, tennis instruction goes.
0: Right, right. No, no, those are great tips. And um, so, you know, when I mentioned the, like, the beginner, total beginner player, and I know this is kind of a complex question, but maybe you could just maybe briefly answer Like, how do you approach it when somebody says, Hey, Matt, you know, I'm really interested in tennis, but I have no idea. Like, I've never played before. Like, how do you approach developing that person's game
2: well it's all gonna uh, it comes down you know the short answer is it comes down to what their time commitment is you know do they want to play once a week and be recreational they're talking about a young child whose parents have a vision for them to play tennis and play in high school you know wh- what their goal is and then you kind of once you talk about what they want to do you can give them a breakdown of what it's going to take to get there i mean what's the old adage it takes uh is it 20,000 playable hours to get proficient at something uh you know and so if you're going to take once a month, you're probably not going to get very good at tennis very fast. But if that's you know that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. So it comes down to a time commitment. Obviously, money factors into it. Um, you know, there's more expensive things to do, but tennis is not cheap. If you're playing you know two three times a week, you're looking at a several hundred dollar bill. Um, so it's all about commitment, you know. And then you can go from there and kind of get people excited about getting on the court and, and doing fun things. I, I like to think I can get people on the court as quickly as possible in a in a playable mode. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to have coaches who kind of showed me how to get up to speed in my early twenties. You know, one of the things I pride myself on is that over the years and you know, this is that people would ask me where I played collegially or where I played as a junior. And I didn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of think my niche is that having several people teach me how to play along the way, I can kind of abbreviate it, you know, for people since I had to kind of abbreviate it for myself in order to keep up with, you know, you juniors and new college level players that, that are so, so good. So
0: yeah, no, I mean, for starting in your 20s, you're, you're a very, you know, very good player. You're playing at the 5 level, which, you know, takes a while to get to. And, uh, the thing that I love about you, Matt, is your personality is so engaging and just, you know, yeah, even hitting on courts next to you, just when you're teaching and, and playing with, with the, the club members. I mean, just really there, you're, you're enabling them to have a really great time while they're learning. And so, they're going to love the sport, you know, when they have that opportunity to be coached by someone like that. So that's really fantastic. Um, and, and did you always, was your personality always, you know, is, is like that? You know, like you're really an extrovert and, and you know, engaging. And, and were you always like that or did it, did it change at some point?
2: <laughs> I think I'm, I'm an extrovert around my family and on the tennis court. I always joke with my lessons. I'm a very confident, positive person. I'm always positive, very confident person inside the weight lines. When i walk outside the court, I kind of, kind of quiet down. I'm not a big fan of crowds, to be honest with you. There's, there's my third one. There's, there's the third one people don't know about. Um, you know, I tend to live a very, very simple life. Uh, I go home. I hang out with my daughter, my dog. Um, I don't do late nights or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, I love, I love making people laugh. I, I understand completely that hour or hour and a half that they come to me and play tennis or, or work with me is, is exercise. It's entertainment, it's fun, you know, I want them getting up in the morning and looking forward to it. I want them leaving, feeling satisfied, and that like, they've accomplished something you know uh, the day is too short, life is too short, so you know you have to maximize the time and if people choose to spend it with you, then you really want to make the most of it.' It's kind of my philosophy, so
0: awesome philosophy, and so I know um obviously I haven't uh you know been a director or anything, but like when I used to teach um at the Aspen Hill Club, actually. Um, I know that it was kind of draining. So uh, even just teaching like four hours or something, it, I was really, really tired. So I was, I was just wondering if you have any tips or I could talk about how you are able to maintain, you know, your personality and and drive um, like throughout the whole day and, and for uh, weeks at a time.
2: Well, I think, again, you have to be doing something you really like doing. But to that end, you know, anything, you know, eating filet mignon every day of the week can get kind of annoying anyway. So, uh <laughs> Uh, you you uh you gotta yeah you know again you gotta go back and understand that the person that comes at five o'clock really doesn't care what the rest of the day was like for you. I mean they they care that you're you know if you have a good lesson and a good person they care about you as a human being, but they're paying the same money the guy at nine o'clock or the girl at nine o'clock did. And so you know for the lack of a bad term, I know I've used this with some people I've taught to teach over the years and, and tried to help along their way, and that's it. On the hour, every hour you have to be that clown. You know what I mean? You have to be that happy. You know, people don't want to hear, oh, I've taught seven hours. I don't care. <laughs> you know, that's that's it's not their problem. So I think that's important. Other thing is, you know, like anything in this world, Miraban, is time management. You know, you don't want to book yourself out 12 hours. And, and you know, mm. if you're thinking, wow, I'm going to make, you know, 1500 bucks today, that's great. That's awesome. But in the long run, if you're worn out and you're not giving good lessons, people are going to go somewhere else. So, you know, you have to have learned over the years, you know, a 12-hour day is great, but sometimes a solid quality eight- or nine-hour day is is much better you know that way especially when you're in my situation you have to answer emails you have to talk to people in phone conversations you know you have to have one-on-one so a lot of times you just can't go back to back to back you need that breathing room and stuff like that then you get old man and you don't have any choice you got to slow down so
0: (laughs) yeah no, no that's great advice so quality over quantity for sure um, bit of a targeted question. I'm sure you see a lot of amateurs having trouble with this stroke, uh, even me. But um, what are three or just a couple tips that you can give us to uh, improve our serves?
2: Your serve. Um. Well, obviously, the toss is the most difficult part of the serve. So I always tell people they can practice handling the ball with their opposite hand. Let's say you're right-handed. Mm-hmm. I think people like don't do don't have a lot of opportunity to use their left hand per se. And so you know, I tell people the more you can engage your opposite hand in daily life. I'll tell people like who I have who toss and can't even throw the ball remotely in the same area. I'll say, well, why don't you spend the rest of the day just doing everything with your left hand? Hmm. Eat with your left hand. You hold your phone in the left hand. Be conscious of the opposite side. You know, and that also hmm. activates parts of your brain. Probably haven't even been thinking about your left hand. Um, I think it's important to have a continental grip. I try to use a one-two-three philosophy where you're taking your you know, your ball to your racket at the beginning, you're dropping your your left arm, again, for a right-hander, down to your left leg. And my father used to say, thigh to eye is kind of how you toss the ball. Um, you know, you're bringing your racket down kind of, you know, around that backwards hands of a clock. So you're coming around like nine to six and then six all the way around to probably two o'clock where you're dropping that racket over your shoulder, you know, splitting your shoulder blades with that continental grip. Uh, you know, so your racket's kind of between your shoulder blades rather than laying flat on your back. And then, uh, you know, I I always like the analogy that I learned at Saddlebrook years ago, and that's, like, you're, like, throwing your racket to the sky. Mm -hmm. So, like, you you take a racket and you just chuck it up, you know. Uh, Another really good one was, like, hammering a nail in a spot in a wall that's very, very hard to reach, Mm because obviously that continental grip has that racket in your hand, kind of like a hammer. And so that was a visualization I thought worked really well. And then uh, I always tell people, finish in your left-hand pocket, again, for a right-hander, or, you know, sheath the sword. Put that bracket down on that opposite side of your body so you get good rotation. Rotation is really important for power, you know, using your core. Um, that would be how I would tell you to help you serve.
0: Uh, those are really wonderful tips. I love those. I've mentioned uh, at least the uh, three erect to the sky one in a previous episode. I don't know. Don't remember which one right now, but yeah, no, that, that's <laughs> excellent. Um, so, you know, obviously, fitness, which you mentioned at the top of the show, is extremely important. And um, I just remember, you know, in college, like we throw in some some uh, some runs or sprints at the end of of uh, our sessions. But how do you incorporate fitness into your uh, into your clinics and your lessons?
2: Well, it depends on the, the level of the student. My men, um, you know, I give them a pretty swift kick. They're pretty good about that. They know my level of play. That you know, I. Yeah, they, they, i guess for lack of a term follow the leader they know that i'm as committed to to being part of the drills and i kind of get in with them every now and again i get in with the ladies a little bit they're uh they're a little bit more difficult sometimes to motivate for movement it just depends on the personality but you know you got to kind of i don't think you have to be a great player to be a good teacher you just have to know how to to teach the right way you know not say the same thing over and over again and kind of understand who you're dealing with some people like you pushed some people like to be coerced, so you know, and some people like to see you know a, a carrot dangled in front of them as some sort of reward for for movement or whatever. So, uh, and as far as the juniors go, like you know, back when we were at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, mm-hmm. I tell the kids it's not punishment when you're done. You know, this is something that's going to make you a better player. You're going to outlast. So when we finish with sprints or you know three ball drills or spider drills or anything like that. You know, I stress to them, we're not punishing you. This is this is fitness. This is gonna get you stronger and make you a better tennis player. And and they you know, they believe that. I think it all starts with trust though, no matter what level you're at. You know, if your lessons trust you and they know you're looking up to make them better and do what's best, they have no they have no issue following suit.
0: Excellent. I love that. I love that, you know, just thinking about the end goal which is gonna motivate you and, and know, you know, help you know that what you're doing is gonna pay dividends later down the line. Um, right. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent, and I also really love that you're talking about um, the importance of analyzing each individual person rather than to have some sort of rigid program that you just put everybody through. You know, you're just analyzing uh, what people need. So that's excellent, um, man. I know right. you you're you've got to go soon. Just I don't know if you have time for a couple more questions. You think? Sure. Okay. Sure. Great. Great. Um, so audience loves hearing about drills. Just curious if you could name or describe a couple of drills that you like to employ when, uh, teaching your, your, uh, students.
2: My ladies and my men, we like to do a lot of two ons. It's two on two situations. Um, you know, we'll warm up ground strokes and, and usually it's pretty simple, easy stuff. Uh, my men are ready to go right out of the gate, at least where I'm at now. My ladies like to have a little bit slower warm up and kind of ease into it. Um, And so we do two two at the net, two at the baseline, rotating through that way, depending on how many people you get. Um, You know, you can break it down into seven people. You're having rotations of of two on one side and three on the other side, if you will. So, you know, people are constantly rotating in and out, whether it be in pairs or in threes, meaning two people on the court and one waiting. Um, You know, I don't like to leave people out for too long. So we do, you know, two at the net, two at the baseline, two at the baseline, uh, two approaching, uh, break them into volleys so you start to drill with the volley right at the service line and play the point from there you start it with an overhead you can start it with a you know a variety i would say the volleys and the overheads are the most difficult scenario because it incorporates more footwork um so we kind of build up to that uh my teenagers we do a lot of ups and downs so like outhouse penthouse if you know what that is it's you know mm, yeah. there's a bottom court we i know you remember the pit from college mm. you know if we have an odd number of kids somebody will be doing fitness in the pit and then we kind of do you know, time-related drills, we'll do a drill I like to call three, two, one. where if you get to the net, you get three points in the drill. If you hit an approach shot, you get two points if you win the point. Everything else is worth one. Or uh, we do a game called six kill, where if you have a short ball and an opportunity to put the ball away, you have to yell kill before you hit it. Um, if your opponent does not touch it, you get six points. If your opponent happens to touch it in any, in any way then you lose six points. So a lot of the kids think they can call kill from the baseline, but you and I both know the best way to do that drill is either in an approach setting or in a volley setting. So uh, it's a lot easier to get, you know, this points that way. So those are a couple of the drills I like to do with uh, the adults and kids.
0: Excellent drills. I hope uh, you guys listening and uh, try at least one of those out. Uh, Matt, do you, uh, you have a favorite tennis book you can uh, tell us about?
2: Uh, you know, I, I, people talk about different, reasons, different ways. I mean, everybody's, I think red winning ugly.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I really enjoyed uh, Agassi's book, as far as it, and, and uh, for the lack of a term, emotional read. I thought it was just interesting hearing his story. Um, I, re- I very much enjoyed Pete Sampras's book, but uh, and Pete's a very different guy. He was very pro Pete, um, but it was interesting to kind of you know it's, you always wonder what these guys are thinking or how they're feeling. You know, I, I, in Pete's book, it was interesting. I believe it was maybe Marcello Rios he was waiting to overt- overtake at the end of the one of the calendar years, and he was you know his back was killing him. He could hardly stand up straight, and I think the story was. Uh, Marcellus ended up defaulting, and Pete went on to be number one just purely by, you know, hosting for the match, if I remember correctly. So, wow. you know, it, it's it's neat hearing those things. But I thought, you know, I think those are excellent tennis books. I don't have a whole lot of time to read now, but I read those, you know, a couple of years ago.
0: Oh, excellent. Appreciate those uh, suggestions. So, what's the best advice you've ever been given about tennis?
2: <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> best advice I've ever been given. Ah. Uh, <laughs> You know, I was very fond of of uh, I mentioned the names before, Lenny Sherman at Theodore. They were very, very big help. I mean, there's been a lot of guys along the way, Mike Barnes, uh, Ross Coleman. Uh, years ago, a guy named Hal Ferguson helped me out. I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of guys that were great. Keith Perrier was a huge inspiration to me. Yep. Um, I, not you can't play angry. Don't talk on the court. Stay focused. You know, you you, you can't. I've always been amazed as as you said in the the interview earlier. I'm a very emotional guy. I'm a, I'm a very energetic guy. I found you are extremely successful when you just do that Roger Federer kind of personality. You know, just be very even-keeled, keep the rage inside, keep the excitement inside. Come on every now and again, I guess is okay. But you know, I always thought it was funny. Some guys get so upset several points into the match. And I guess the best tip is keep your emotions in check and, you know, be as stone-faced as you can.
0: Right. Right. No, exactly. And Keith, for your first guest on the show, episode two. And so I know you've just given us uh, the best piece of advice that you've heard, but I always love to close with, uh, you know, one key piece of advice uh, that that you have um, that you think can really help uh, our audience improve their games.
2: Piece of advice for everyone else. (laughs) Take a lesson. A lot of people don't take lessons anymore. It's actually, I know, you know, I blew my... My left me out a couple of years ago and actually reached mm-hmm. out to thinking about, re, thinking about reaching out to see again. Um, see if I can't get back on the court and start working on my game a little bit. I mean, if you love the game, like we love the game, you know, get, get some perspective, have somebody help you out a little bit. Um, and you know, it's just, just get out and do it. I mean, life is so short. Just get out and get some exercise, hit the ball, have fun. And it sounds so cliche, but, uh, you know, one of the things I miss it now I'm down in Virginia and I don't know as many people as back in Baltimore. I had a ton of friends and I could reach out and almost every day find a way to find somebody to hit with. So, you know, it's one of the things I miss is just getting out on the court and hitting the ball.
0: Yeah. I think that's super important, Matt. Just investing in uh, great coaches like yourself is going to really accelerate your progress instead of trying to figure out everything uh, on your own uh, if you can. Um, so, Matt, uh, where can we follow you on social media or otherwise?
2: uh you know we're at chantilly national so it's uh their website if you just go if you go on the website you can click and you know friend their facebook page uh i'm on facebook i would have no clue what my I'd just look up my builder <laughs> that's, that's that's where i am i'm not very i'm not very uh, uh tech savvy if you don't know this about it there, there's the fourth thing you don't know about, about it. i struggle with my telephone enough as it is i can answer it and i can text it's about all i do um but yeah you can follow me on facebook we post a lot of the goings-ons um and then, you know, a lot of the friends I have, like yourself in the community, will always forward things I post that uh, they say. So, there's probably the two best ways to follow me, whether it be at Chantilly or on my Facebook page.
0: Awesome, Matt. Well, I know, uh, you know, your daughter's waiting for you. Um, she's got a soccer <laughs> game, and don't want to keep, uh, you know, you from from getting a, a yelling at or anything like that. But I just want to, <laughs> you know, I just want to really uh, thank you, Matt. You know, you've, you've been a lot of help, uh, for, for my game and, and for my team and for everybody. And you've, you've really, you know, your passion really shines through. Um in what you do and and really appreciate you uh you know helping so many players improve their games um through you and so uh thanks for being on the podcast and all the best moving forward and I hope to actually you know see see you soon and play with you yeah I
2: look forward to it it's been really fun uh, uh talking to you today Mirabon uh, I had a, a
0: one
2: of the highlights of my life was being able to coach you guys at UNBC and it's been awesome crossing paths with you again and uh, I look forward to seeing you again real soon my friend
0: all right Matt thanks a lot.
2: Thank you. Have a great day, man.
0: All right. I hope you all really enjoyed my interview with Matt Bilger. It was a pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if you guys would leave uh, an honest review of the Tennis Files podcast on iTunes or whatever uh, podcast app you use to listen to the show. Uh, That would be a very nice uh, holiday gift, if you will, if you could um, spare some time to uh, let me know. Uh, how the show's doing and what you like about it. And if there's anything I can improve, um, I'm always down for that. Uh, and also I'd like to leave you with a quote, uh, with it being the new year. Um, here's a great one by Melody Beattie. And she said, The new year stands before us like a chapter in a book waiting to be written. We can help write that story by setting goals. Uh, Speaking of goals, um, if you want a free guide on how to set goals to accomplish, uh, you know, what you want in your tennis career, um, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash goals. So that's S-M-A-R-T-G-O-A-L-S. Yes, I got that right. Um, Sweet. Well, uh, again, I wish you all a very uh, safe uh, and happy new year. Um, cheers to a great 2017, and uh, I look forward to having you listen in to the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, This is Miraban and uh, happy new year. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.